You know, I thank Darren earlier for being here to help us set up this morning, but I want to thank him for last week too. Boy, he had a, a hard passage. He was, uh, if you were here, you know he's talking about mill, millstones tied around necks and thrown into the sea. He was talking about metaphorical amputations of body parts that cause us to sin. In essence, he was teaching that passage where Jesus brought out the, the seriousness of sin in, in hell and did a wonderful job taking us to the cross where, where we need to go in light of that. But when I talked to Aaron this week and told him that my passage was about divorce and marriage and remarriage, he said, oh, I'm glad I had last week. Because this is another one of those tender uh, kind of passages, and it's proof that I don't pass out all the hard ones, right? <laughs> but I want you to know that, that as I go through this passage this morning, I don't come to it as just some objectively removed, unemotional scholar. Uh, I come to this passage as a, a pastor and a friend because I know in this room there's not one of us whose life has not been touched in some way, shape, or form by divorce. Either we've gone through it, we are going through it, or someone we love has gone through it and the, the fallout came our way. It's a, it's a painful difficult reality. Whether there were biblical grounds or not, it hurts. And there are people who hurt from this. So I come with a pastor's heart as I share this this morning. I, I think about the old story uh, about a, a town where there was a, a high cliff and people kept falling off that cliff and their first response was to send paramedics just to camp out at the bottom and as they fell off the cliff they would care for them and and that was good and until one one day somebody said you know this is good but maybe we should build a wall up there too to help people stop falling off in the first place and i think about that story and that's some of what i want to do this morning too i want to bring the healing and grace of jesus to those who have experience the pain of divorce, but I want to also join him as he lifts up marriage and builds a wall showing us what it is and what God's heart is for it to prevent any further carnage at the bottom. Okay, I think about this and I also think, look, there is no room for pride here on the part of anyone. If, if you've been married to one person for a lifetime and, and never gone through a divorce, there is no room for pride. You know why? Because uh, I'm guessing your marriage is a lot like mine. Do, do you, does your marriage perfectly reflect Christ and the church to a watching world? <laughs> no, if, you're, if yours is like mine, sometimes it does by God's grace, and there are other times where we fall short and have to repent of the, the way we treat our spouse and the picture the world is, is getting. So there's no room for pride on the part of those who are married for a lifetime. There's, there's no room for, for obstinate pride on, on the part of anyone who's, who's been divorced either. We're going to learn that there are some divorces that are not biblical. And as we talk about that, if the Spirit starts to convict, the answer is not to put up that wall of pride. It's to, to humbly say, yes, yes, I, I repent of that. God opposes the proud but gives grace 
to the humble. So wherever He's touching us this morning, we want to come humbly wherever we find ourselves in life. I also want us to remember whose lips these words were originally on. They were on the lips of the Savior, who throughout much of the rest of this book, He's heading to Jerusalem for one purpose, to to die for our sins. He's the Lamb of God to come take away the the sin of the world. It's important to remember what He said in John 3. Did, Did He come to condemn the world? No, why did He say He came? He came to save the world. That's whose lips this is on. Condemned is all of our default position without Christ, okay? We all sin and either we've come to Jesus in faith and repentance and found His grace or we need to, okay? I I remind us whose lips this is on because we know from the Gospels that even Scripture when on the wrong lips with wrong intentions can be used for nefarious purposes, You remember when Satan used Scripture to to tempt Jesus? And I'm sure Satan would love to take this same passage today. And you're a believer sitting here, and he would love to take it and and bring you to a place where you walk out of here feeling condemned and and crushed and, and without hope with this lie that God's done with me because of what's happened in my life. Don't listen to him. This comes on the lips of a Savior, okay? who came to bring forgiveness and lead us to abundant life, life to the full. So I want to dive in here. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. As he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, if you're reading closely, did you notice, did they ask this because they're honestly curious and they want to know what Jesus believes on this? No, what did that verse say? Why did they ask Him? To test Him. Yes, they're always trying to do this, right? And this verse 1 where it tells us where He's at at the time is very important. You know whose territory He's in right now as they try to test Him? Herod. You remember Herod has strong feelings about this divorce and remarriage thing. So much so that when John confronted him about divorcing his wife and remarrying somebody else, Herod had him executed. So when they came to test him, that may have been one thing on their minds. Maybe we can get Jesus to, to boldly speak against it and Herod will come get him too. Or maybe they know Jesus is full of grace and truth, but maybe... Knowing that Moses allowed for divorce in certain situations in Deuteronomy, maybe if they can get Jesus to speak against it, then they can say, aha, you disagree with Moses. And then all the people are going to say, oh my goodness, he can't be the Messiah. So they're trying to trap him, to test him. Jesus is not a good person to do that to. As always, he he springs the trap and as often he does it with a question back to them, taking them right back to the Moses they mentioned when they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He takes them right back to their scriptures, rather. Verse 3, he answered them, what did Moses command you? Well, they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Did you know that? 
You may be saying, where is that? It's in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Okay, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Moses writes, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, that's an important phrase here, no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, that's another important phrase, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and he goes on. Now those two phrases are key. No favor in his eyes, he's found some indecency in her. In the first century, the Jewish rabbis were wrestling with this divorce topic. They, they all agreed that there were times where divorce was allowed, but where they argued is where many people argue today. What were the grounds for divorce? What, what does some indecency mean? And in the first century before Jesus, there were two rabbis in particular that were arguing back and forth on this. One was Hillel, was his name, and he had a student named Shammai. And Shammai, very conservative, he looked at some indecency and he said, that means sexual immorality and sexual immorality alone. His, his mentor, Hillel, took a much more trivial, I'll call it, path, a much more liberal path definition of what some indecency might be. He included, if she's a, a brawling woman, how do you define that? They defined it as a woman whose voice could be heard in the next house over. So God forbid if you happen to speak loudly, ladies. Okay? He, he also included if, if she spoke unfavorably of her husband's relatives in front of him. He, he could... Divorce his wife. What about this one? If she overcooked the food, that was in there for, for Hillel. That's some indecency. It gets worse. There was another rabbi along the way named Akiba who chose to focus in on the, the phrase, no favor in his eyes. If she finds no favor in his eyes in Deuteronomy 24, he way misinterpreted that, and he said what that means is if he finds another woman who's more beautiful in his eyes, and in light of her, his wife finds no favor in his eyes, he can move on. So you can see there's this conservative camp, and there's this very, very trivial view. Divorce for almost any reason. Now the rest of the Old Testament did not go without speaking to the Jews about divorce. If you remember the last prophet, the, the only Italian one, Malachi, you remember him? Oh, it's Malachi. <laughs> he, he wrote about, sorry, boy, did you guys have coffee? <laughs> he, he wrote about divorce in his book in, in Malachi chapter 2. I'm going to read from the, the New King James. He says, You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. He does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. He, he, he doesn't receive this offering from you. Yet you say, for, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did He not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. 
Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence. Covers one's violent with garment with violence. Now we know from the Old Testament that Moses allowed for it, Deuteronomy 24, in certain situations. We also know that's true in the New Testament era in which we live. Uh, Matthew 19, when he records the same incident that Mark gives us here, he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. He allows that exception for sexual immorality. There's another one in 1 Corinthians 7. If you as a believer are married to an unbeliever, as long as they'll stay with you, you are to stay with them. But he, he says if they decide to leave, that unbelieving spouse decides to leave you, to divorce you. Verse 15 says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Those are the two clear allowances. Others see in Scripture grounds for divorce in a case of abuse or extreme neglect. Okay? And if I know somebody's going to ask me afterwards, where do you stand on that? And that's the only reason I'm going to share it now. My words don't matter as much as that you go to the Word and sort it out before God. Okay, but in those last two situations, what I encourage folks to do is to separate for safety's sake. You don't have to subject yourself to that kind of abuse and work from a distance for reconciliation. But that said, others believe differently based on Scripture. Okay. Bottom line, there are biblical grounds for divorce, okay, that are mentioned. Now let me share a statistic. It's a little bit old. Keeping that truth in mind, Los Angeles Times 1994 reported the amount of American marriages dissolved by divorce that year. In 1994, 1.2 million American marriages were dissolved by divorce. The Discipleship Journal along the way did a study on the differences between those who don't claim Christianity and those who do claim Christ. And they quoted the Minerth Meyer Counseling Clinic. They said the divorce rate for Christians is only 10% lower than for non-Christians. Now when you look at the sheer amount of American divorces and the fact that those who claim to be Christians do it at almost the same rate, how many of you believe that all of those or even most of those had biblical grounds? I do not. I do not. The 1970s something called no-fault divorce was introduced. Okay? And I propose to you that many divorces in our culture today are for far less than biblical grounds. Sometimes we, we throw around the phrase irreconcilable differences. And there are some of those to be sure, included in these situations with biblical grounds. But there are other trivial cases that we call irreconcilable differences. Let me ask you a question. What makes a difference irreconcilable? in those cases where it's less than biblical grounds? 
I think sometimes it's just the fact that we decide it's irreconcilable. Because as soon as you decide we can't work through this, all of a sudden that's what it becomes. I like what Jill Briscoe said. When the doors on a marriage are shut and bolted and a fire breaks out, all your time and energy goes to putting out the flames. You understand what she's saying? When you're committed for life, you can work through a lot of stuff that will surprise you. But as long as you've got escape as an option on your mind, you'll call it an irreconcilable difference. Okay, what did Jesus say? Verse 5 about these exceptions. Because there are exceptions. We need to remember that. Jesus said to them in verse 5, because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote you this commandment. He's saying, it's because your hearts are hard. That's why he allowed this exception. So let me ask you two questions. Is every divorce sin based on what we've said here? No. Is every divorce caused by sin? Yes. When Moses wrote that, it's because God had him write that because he knows we live in a fallen, broken world where sin happens. It's because of your hardness of heart he wrote you this commandment. And now Jesus is going to take it to a whole nother level. Not only was He going to use what they had in mind in Deuteronomy, He's going to go to a prior passage of Moses. He's going to go beyond talking about divorce and when it's allowed. He's going to go to God's ideal for marriage. Why did God create it? What did God have in mind? What, what was His intent and His design for marriage? He goes all the way back to Genesis, which as I go through this, I want to make a, a side note here. Sometimes, have you ever heard somebody say, yeah, I, I follow Jesus, but that Old Testament stuff like that history and Genesis and some of that other stuff, that's, that's whack. Like, that's not historical. I, I follow Jesus, but not that. Well, I have to ask you, what kind of Jesus, what Jesus are you following? Because as we go through this, he looks back at the Genesis account as historical, and as the Word of God. So, next time someone throws that at you, say, what, what Jesus is that? Because He sees it as historical in the Word of God. Verse 6, back in Genesis He goes, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. What do you see there? You see a Creator who creates gender. Right? Male and female. As creator, he reserves that right to decide what gender each of us are. He is the creator. We are creation. Then he goes on to talk about marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Okay, the man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. What do we have here? We have gender, and here we have heterosexual marriage between that male and female. I want to talk about the creation of the female for a minute because 
It's been shared that women and men have a different view sometimes as to the reason why the, the woman was created. Women might look at the creation account. God makes man and and then he looks and says, boy, I can do better than that. <laughs> it might be how a woman views it. The, the man might say it was just Adam and God and it was quiet. <laughs> too, too quiet. <laughs> so God created the woman and it hasn't been quiet ever since. <laughs> let's get to the root of why he did it though together the male and female represent God's image and then he takes the the rib from the man creates the woman and it's in marriage as they they come back together that 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 image is seen within marriage the image of God that completion of the the creation gender heterosexual marriage okay why marriage? Kids have an interesting perspective on marriage sometimes. I remember one time when I was six years old, a neighbor girl named Deanna asked me if I could get married. And I said, I can't. i got to get home for dinner. I didn't have time. It was almost dinner time. I read about a nine-year-old girl named Gwen. She wrote this. She said, when I get married, I want to marry someone who is tall and handsome and rich and hates spinach as much as me. <laughs> There was a 10-year-old boy named Steve that wrote, I want to marry someone just like my mother, except I hope she doesn't make me clean up my room. (laughs) (laughs) Why marriage? Well, Dennis Rainey wrote a great book with Barbara Rainey. Together they wrote Staying Close. The three chapters in the middle of that book about oneness are worth the price of the whole book. He said Rocky, of all people, Rocky Balboa actually got it more than most. Do you remember the first Rocky before all the sequels? When, when he's fallen for, for Adrian and Paul, her brother Polly doesn't get why, why he's fallen for his sister. And Polly says, I don't see what's the attraction. And you remember what Rocky said? He said, I don't know. Fills gaps, I guess. Polly says, What gaps? She got gaps. I got gaps. Together we fill gaps. <laughs> that, that's it, right? It's. Since a woman came from man, as they come back together in marriage, it, it fills gaps. Okay, so we've got gender defined by God. We've got heterosexual marriage ordained by God. Verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. It is God that joins a marriage together. And what does He say here? He says it is for a lifetime. For a lifetime. And I want to ask the the conservative, biblical-believing church a couple questions here. We care a lot about gender, male and female, as we should, because God created that. We also care a lot about heterosexual marriage as the only kind of marriage ordained by God, as we should, because He ordained that. Do we care as much about this lifetime covenant part of it? Because the same God who created gender and said it's heterosexual, He said it's for life. Do we care as much about that? 
Should we? Yes. Yes, that one's a little more personal for all of us who are married because that one touches on us every time we hit the rough spots in our marriage, correct? But God cares just as much about the lifetime part as He does about the other parts. But it's not just about enduring life together for, for 50, 60 years. Like, like one guy said, marriage is like a cage match. Only one of us is getting out of here alive. <laughs> <laughs> it's not only that like because I think you can care about marriage being for a lifetime but we also have to go on to okay do I care about what God's intent for this marriage is what what did he create it to be what did he create it for it's like uh in that same book, Staying Close, Dennis Rainey used the example. He taught a sixth grade Sunday school class. And he divided the kids into three groups. And he gave each group a thousand pieces of a puzzle. One here, one here, one here. In the first group, he gave the, the box cover for their puzzle that showed them what to, to go after. The second group, he gave them a box cover from a different puzzle than the, the pieces they had. And the third group, he didn't give a box cover at all. You can guess which group made the most progress on their puzzle, right? The one that had a clear picture on the box cover of what they were putting together. They started the borders and started to put it together. He proposes in that same book that that's the only way we know what to aim for. When he talks about cleaving to one another, holding fast, it's not a one-time thing. It's a lifetime journey. But what, what do we do? What are we after? Here's five things God's after in Christian marriage, okay? Number one, to mirror God's image to a world that's watching. Number two, to multiply a godly heritage when there's kids in the picture. Okay, to manage God's realm where you have influence. To, to mutually complete one another and to model Christ's relationship to the church. That's the, the picture that God intended our, our marriages for. And as I, I think about that, and I go back to the wall we talked about early on, about building this wall along with Jesus to prevent further carnage, I want to challenge those of us who are married that we are always doing one of two things in our marriages. We're always either building that wall, you know, taking additional brick and mortar and putting it on there, praying together, reading Scripture together, serving together, going to church together, being actively involved in life together, having fun together, working through challenges side by side. We're either building that wall or we're tearing that wall down. And the tearing the wall down sometimes happens in small ways. You get the hammer and the chisel and start working on that mortar between the bricks. Negative attitude all the time. Complaining. Ridiculous expectations for the other one. Chip, chip, chip. Sometimes it's a sledgehammer, an affair. Well, whatever the case in our marriages, we are always either building that wall or tearing it down. Now, as we think about the ideal, that leaving and cleaving and, and representing Christ's love for the church to the world, I want to come back to the question of divorce. Is divorce always sin? 
No, we said that before, right? Sometimes there are biblical grounds. Is it always caused by sin? By at least one party? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Does divorce always fall short of God's ideal that we see in the garden? Yes. Even when it's allowed. It was a concession because we live in a sinful world. When it's allowed by God, is it sometimes the best choice? Yes, unfortunately so. Is it always the best choice, even when it's allowed? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. And this is what, where I want to encourage anybody who's working through some stuff in your marriage, just to say, even when there's biblical grounds for divorce, it does not mean you have to pursue it. You, you read the Old Testament, books like Hosea, where God shows His faithful love to sinful Israel. You know how He chooses to show it? Through a prophet named Hosea, who He says, you go marry a prostitute who's going to be unfaithful to you. And you be faithful to her. And that's how I'll show my love for sinners. Now you think about the picture in the New Testament. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. Does the church sin against God? Oh yeah, sometimes grievously does he remain faithful. Yes, yeah, so I want to encourage you. It's because it's allowed and maybe God will lead you to do that. Don't just assume that and rush into it. Pray it through. Say, God, what would you have me do here? Is divorce when it's allowed here the best option? Or are you calling me to, to hang in here and continue to show your love to my spouse? even after they did this. 1 Corinthians 10.23 says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And all I'm challenging us to do when we get in those hard moments in a marriage, even if there's biblical grounds, is don't just rush to the divorce. To go beyond what's allowed... To, to look at the ideal in the garden and say, God, what are you calling me to do here? And then follow him. That, that's all I'm asking. Now, verse 10. is in the house. The disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is where Matthew added the sexual immorality exception. When Matthew recorded this, it would read, whoever divorces his wife and marries another, except for sexual immorality, commits adultery against her. Even with the exception, though, this passage here, this event in the life of our Savior, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ leaves us face to face with a, a reality that, that is uncomfortable. It is that number one, divorce does not always have biblical grounds and when it does not have biblical grounds, there is no grounds for remarriage. Listen again, whoever, even with the Exception clause, whoever divorces his wife and marries another except for sexual morality commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. There are times when remarriage is not biblical. 
I'll never forget a, a conversation I had with someone one time. They had left a church because there was a homosexual flag on the stage. They supported the homosexual lifestyle as an acceptable choice before God. Now, I'll make a disclaimer here, okay? We love homosexuals just like we love all the rest of us sinners, okay? God loves homosexuals, but He hates their sin just like He hates mine, and He hates yours, and we believe in loving them, preaching the gospel to them, not saying you're okay living like that. Okay, so these people left the church for that reason, because they supported living in that lifestyle. I believe rightfully so. So we continued talking about marriage and divorce and remarriage, and they were surprised to find out that we will not do remarriage in every case at this church. They were more than surprised. They called me a legalist. They called me a legalist, and you know what I told them? I said, the same Bible talks about the divorce and remarriage that talks about homosexuality. And I don't want the watching world to look into our church and say, that's a church, they care all about homosexuality. They're always talking about that. But look, it's like a divorce and remarriage factory. All these people getting divorced and remarried and divorced and remarried many times with no biblical warrant. Why are they speaking against this, but they're okay with this? Both are in the Word of God. Now as we close, I think about what was said in Hebrews 13.4. Is let marriage be held in honor among all. Let it be held in honor among all. And I think that the, the Spirit, I know the Spirit works through His Word and he may be putting his finger on something in our lives right now where we're aware of something that needs repented of. Or there's something from our past that we never confessed or something right now. I want to bring us to John chapter 8. To a woman who was caught red-handed in the act of adultery. Thrown before Jesus by the religious leaders. They didn't bring the man, I always like to add, just her. But John 8, verse 9, after Jesus had said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. As when they heard it, the men went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman, standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I love that passage. I love that passage. And I always read that last phrase, go, and from now on, sin no more. And I think about this. I think the invitation, come as you are. Come as you are. That's the invitation. Okay? Come as you are. But that's not the final destination. Because Jesus has in mind your transformation. 
He doesn't just say you're not condemned. He says go and, and sin no more. So I want us to come here in faith and repentance and receive the grace, but I also want us to ask, whatever my status in life right now, is there anything in my relation to God's view of marriage that needs repented of? Maybe I'm single and I'm not waiting for marriage with my eyes, my mind, or, or even my body. Confess it. Lay it down. Proclaim to God, I trust your good plan that sex is reserved for marriage and marriage alone. Maybe you're here and you're divorced with, with biblical grounds, but if you look in your heart, there's still some bitterness or some ways that, that you're not reflecting Christ to that ex or, or others. Lay that down. Maybe, maybe you're divorced with unbiblical grounds. And neither of you has moved on to another marriage yet. And God would say, go back and work towards reconciliation today with my help. Maybe you've both moved on to remarriage or one of you. Then the, the challenge is, help me, Lord, be the best spouse to my current spouse. And help me be a great ex to my former one, Lord. Show me where I fall short. Maybe you're married. May all of us who are married should take an honest inventory before God and say, God, show me where I'm not reflecting your image in my marriage, where I'm being selfish, rude, hurtful, impatient, bitter. Help me lay that down so I and our marriage can reflect Christ to the world. Ephesians 5.31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. There's good news here. You don't have to do it alone. In fact, you can't. I can't. In that same passage where it talks about the roles in marriage, you know what Ephesians 5.18 says? Be filled with the Spirit. It's only through Him that Christ comes through. Okay, and it makes me think about a story Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade, told one time. He told a true story about a man who had saved for a long time to get on a cruise ship. And he got on the cruise ship and he brought along crackers and cheese to, to eat. He'd sit in his cabin and eat and he'd watch outside his cabin window as those carts went by with the lobster dripping with butter and the, the smell of the steak. And he'd sit in there eating his crackers and cheese. Until one day he ran out and he, he talked to somebody that worked on the cruise line about being out of crackers and cheese. And the guy said, have you been eating crackers and cheese this whole cruise? He said, yeah. He said, you didn't know that the, the, the lobster and the steak and the prime rib, that's all included? He said, no. And the rest of the cruise, that man feasted. And Bill Bright used that to say that's what Christians are like when we think we got to go out there and try to do this in our own power. God's like, you didn't know the Holy Spirit's included? You look to me in faith and yield yourself to Him and He will work in you to bring about my fruit. It's powerful when that happens. People start to see Jesus in our lives and our marriages. I want to close with one way that happened. True story about a little girl named Emma. Some time ago, six, six years old, blind, abandoned by her parents. 
She lived in a big city. And the only way she could make money to feed herself was to take pencils down to the local train station. And she would sell pencils there. One day the train station was exceptionally busy and she heard the footsteps running this way and that way and somebody bumped into little Emma and knocked her pencils all over the floor. Being blind, she had no means of picking all those up with all those people until she, she felt someone come near a man and he said, let me help you. And he picked up all of her pencils and, and put them back in her container and he handed her a bill and he said, here's $20. And you know what she said to him? She said, Mister, are you Jesus? Are you Jesus? And he said, No, but I'm one of his followers. And she said, I figured you must at least be related. <laughs> and I hear that, and I think whether we're single or married, it's as we press into Him and allow Him to live His life through us that the world around us starts to get the glimpse of Him that we're here to give them. Amen? Father, thank You so much for Your Word. I thank You we have a Savior who cannot be trapped. You can't trap God. He's Jesus, full of grace and truth, just beautifully walks us through, takes us to Your heart, Lord, thank You for grace. Thank You for truth. I pray that no one would leave here without putting themselves at the feet of that Savior, just like that woman. We hear those words as we turn to Him as our Savior and Lord. No one condemns You, nor do I. To be covered in the precious blood of the Lamb of God. To come as we are, but then to remember You're doing a work you got transformation in mind through your spirit. So anywhere you're putting your finger today, Lord, please work. Lord, help us to love each other as a church as we walk this out in a world that needs to see your love. All of us single and, and married people, arm in arm with you together, walking in your grace and truth. Lord, I... Pray that even as we share our offering this morning, that You'd help us use that faithfully for the advancement of Your good news, Your kingdom, both here and abroad, Lord. Thank You for Your provision of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. In His name we pray. Amen.